Amanda, remember that time a trans man saved thousands of lives from tuberculosis? to Remember That Time and Historical Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Webb. And I'm your host, Anna Webb, and this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out about all their favorite moments in history. And it's Pride Part 2, baby! Ooh, Pride Month, Pride <laughs> Month. Still going strong. We, <laughs> I realized when we were talking about recording this week, I was like, oh, it's like literally almost the end of <laughs> Just because of the way our, our episodes fell this I year. I can't believe it's almost the end of Pride Month. Yeah, yeah, I can't believe it's almost the end of June. We should spend half a you know half of twenty twenty one. God, ew. (laughs) Yeah, that it's like gross to think about. Time isn't real. Um, (laughs) you know it's fine. Uh, here we are doing it. Yes. Would you like a drink update? Yes, I would. Great. I'm having a mango hard cider. Ooh, yum. It's so tasty. Yum. I almost had a milkshake because I was running errands and I was going to stop and get a milkshake. But then I was just like, I just, I spent just entirely too much money on Walmart. And I was like, I'm not going to get a milkshake. So instead I'm drinking water. (laughs) Oh, milkshake sounds good. I know I I, would kill for a milkshake. (laughs) You know, I have a problem with the dairy (laughs) items. But every once in a while I'm like, I'm just really craving a milkshake. And there are places up here where I can order one and have it delivered to my home. I wish that were me. It's the best. <laughs> I wish that were me. All right. Well, shall we get into it today? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so today we're going to talk about Alan L. Hart, which um, some of you may know who this person is. Some of you may not. I do I, not. I looked up some like um, lesser known queer history because I was like, I'd like to talk about something that maybe doesn't get a lot of attention yeah because i kind of picked a giant for the last one yeah and i almost (laughs) picked a giant for this one but then i like didn't give myself enough time and i was like let's just find something interesting that maybe we don't know as much about so um this is a trans man so i just want to give a little bit of a blanket statement here at the beginning we're only going to mention this person's birth name or dead name one time at the beginning just for facts Mm -hmm. and then we are going to use the he him pronouns for the whole thing even pre-transition because that well we'll talk about it but he he did so there's just no reason to not um you know, I think in some cases you could make the argument to be like, well, here we're talking about the context of pre-transition, so we will use these pronouns that other people use to refer to them, but we're not going to do that in this particular case because it doesn't really apply. Awesome. So that's where we are. Great. So you ready? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So Alan L. Hart, who was also sometimes known as Robert Allen Bamford Jr., which we'll circle back to later, okay, <laughs> um, is born as Alberta Lucille Hart on October 4th, 1890 in Halls Summit, Kansas. Um, his father is Albert L. Hart and his mother is Edna Hart. And in Edna 18- Hart is a really excellent it's name. It's a great name. Just as an um, aside. 
really good name. Well, she doesn't keep it for very long, because in 1892, Alan's father passes away of typhoid fever. Oh, man. And when he dies, um, Edna t- resumes using her main name, okay. Bamford. Got so, it. Which is Bamford. Um, Got it. So, after his father's death, the family moves to Lynn County, Oregon. And when he's five, his mother remarries, and they move the family to her father's farm. Okay. So, he grows up on his grandfather's farm. Okay. Um... Later in his life, he writes that he's very happy during this time. He presents freely as male. Um, he plays with a lot of quote unquote boys toys. Right. Uh, that his grandfather makes for him. Ah. Um, and his parents and grandparents are generally pretty accepting of his identity um, and his gender expression. Um, his mother was a little more iffy. Uh, she calls his, quote, desire to be a boy foolish. But, you know, okay, listen, uh-huh. the fact is that we're in the 1890s. Yeah. And I we're mean, doing okay. Yeah, not bad so for the far. 1890s. <laughs> right. And in his grandparents' obituaries, they both list him as their grandson. Dude, <laughs> yeah so his his grandfather is like kind of his hero mm-hmm. uh, and or like his role model i guess you'd say um i got and his this... grandfather appeared to be very accepting which is yeah from, i got from this yeah i got this bit from outhistory.org which had a pretty good little you know short piece about him mm-hmm. um and it says he hated to perform domestic work which would be like more of a girl mm-hmm. you know performance thing um he preferred to play civil war games and Classic. was said to have had a passion for pocket knives and chopping wood <laughs> He was interested in sports such as football, rowing, hunting, tennis, and hiking. Alan's role model from an early age was his grandfather, whom he would follow around and listen to while he talked about agriculture and politics. (laughs) I just liked that quote. I thought it summed things up pretty well. I just really like the sentence, um, has a passion for pocket knives and chopping wood. (laughs) Yeah. And I read something else that was like, at one point, he was... um, I don't remember what it said he was doing, something on the farm, you know, using a knife or something. And he, like, chopped off the end of his finger <gasps> and, like, tended to it himself and, like, oh. didn't tell anybody oh about God. it. And I was like, oh, wow. That's wild. Um, there's not, like, a ton known about his early life. And we'll get back to why that is later. Uh-huh. Um, but when he's 12, the family moves to Albany. And in order to attend school, he has to present female. Uh, and he's treated as a girl because his legal name is a female. You know, legally, right. quote, he's technically a female because he was born female. That's, yeah. Um, or assigned female at birth, I mm-hmm. should say. Um, so, you know, he is teased a good bit in school because he does like to keep his hair short and, you know, looks a little more boyish, even though he is technically presenting female. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is, during his school years, allowed to write essays under his, like, chosen name at the time, which is Robert Allen Bamford Jr. See, I told you we'd come back to it. Again, this is, like, wow. (laughs) 
Yes, it's pretty, during the time it was like very normal for people to assume pen names often of the oh, opposite gender. That's, oh, yeah. So there wasn't really much resistance for to, writing under that name. Huh. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I hadn't thought about that. That's really interesting. And he would write into like local newspapers sure. and school and college publications under that name, or sometimes he'd submit it as an anonymous boy, <laughs> um, or would he would use like initials like A L A A L H or A Heart, um, something more neutral, right? Huh. Um, he he did write a lot about more masculine subjects, even when he was asked to write about, like, life as a woman. Huh. Um, I found this interesting. Um, when asked to write about female classmates or friends, he portrayed them as prize fighters or boyish basketball players. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Love that. Um, so we're going to jump ahead a little bit here, because, again, not a lot about his early life is okay. super known. Sorry, pause for beverage. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Bevragino. Bevragino. Take a drink of your Bevragino. Did someone say Bevragino? Okay. I cannot uh, believe that's the first time we've done that on this podcast. <laughs> I know, because we do it Because we a lot. say it to each other every time we're in the same room having a drink. <laughs> that's so true. That's shocking to me. That's the first time we've done that. Anyway. I know. Okay, so Alan attends Albany College, which is now Lewis and Clark College. Okay. Um... During the school year of, like, 1911 to 1912, he actually transfers to Stanford um, with his then-partner, Ava Cushman. Mm -hmm. um, and then he transfers back to Albany after that, and then he graduates from there in 1912. Um, he has a lot of relationships with women during his, like, college years and shortly after. Sure. Um, so, actually, there's a lot of, like, debate in terms of his legacy as to whether or not he should be referred to as a lesbian or a transgendered person because that term didn't super exist at the time right so a lot of stuff about him from like a little earlier on before we started really recognizing what transgender truly was mm -hmm. would more often refer to him as a lesbian. Early histories of him would have exactly. referred to him as a lesbian. Which I find interesting. It is very interesting. Um, but obviously, I mean, we'll get into it more here in a little bit, but like clearly he's a transgender person. Right. If the term had existed, I feel he would have used it, though mm -hmm. he never referred to himself as that. But it didn't start getting used until like much later during his lifetime. So right. anyway, that's, we can talk more about that later. <laughs> but, um, so in 1917, he obtains a doctor of medicine degree from the University of Oregon Medical Department in Portland, which is now Oregon Health and Science University. Um, his degree is issued in his female name. Right. Which he was obviously very unhappy about because it really limits his opportunities to live as himself under, right. you know, his chosen name. Because if he wants to keep practicing, he has to use the name that's on his degree. Exactly. Which sucks. <laughs> yeah, and it would make it hard for him to get jobs. And, and it's uh, much harder to get that changed and like, yeah. yeah. Um. There are college records that show that a member of staff had um, indexed 
his graduation record internally as Hart, Lucille, a.k.a. Robert L. M.D. So a member of staff did note. Like snuck it in there. Yeah, exactly. For him, yeah. But it wasn't on his, you know, actual printed degree or anything like that. Um, and then after graduating, he actually works for a short time at Red Cross at a Red Cross hospital in Philadelphia, where he does have to present female. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, he's an adult now, mm-hmm. and he decides he's going to seek some psychiatric counseling and possibly surgery to live as a man. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, he's. The first documented transgender male transition in the United States. And we're going to loop back around to, like, what exactly that means here in a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. That's interesting. Yeah. There had been some reassignment surgeries carried out in Germany earlier than this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I... I just think this is good for context. Mm -hmm. So there's a 1906-07 case of someone named Carl M. Bayer um, that had set a new precedent for sex reassignment surgery by enlisting simultaneous support from psychiatric, legal, and surgical quarters. Uh, There was now medical and legal precedent for transitioning. So Hart's approach... Um, to his own transition, appears to have drawn on the Bayer case. Right. Using all of those... Exactly. ...pieces to be able to transition. Right. That's really interesting. So in 1917, Allen approaches um, Joshua Allen Gilbert, who is a doctor, um, at the University of Oregon, and requests a surgery that will eliminate menstruation and therefore eliminate the possibility that he'll become pregnant. Okay. So this doctor is really interesting, actually. So initially, he's pretty reluctant. But then he accepts that Hart was, quote, extremely intelligent and not mentally ill, mm. but afflicted with a mysterious disorder for which I have no explanation. <laughs> um, um, it's called being transgender. Right. <laughs> but he didn't know that. I there know, wasn't I a word for that. that. Yeah. Um, and it says that he accepted that Hart experienced himself only as a male and he would Hart would describe himself using phrases like the other fellows and I and right. what's a what's what could a fellow do <laughs> so Gilbert like keeps case notes of all of this mm-hmm. um and they're later published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disorders oh, right, in 1920. Yeah. But his notes say that, quote, from a psychological and... Sociological. I'm sorry, thank you. From a sociological and psychological standpoint, it says she, but meaning Hart, Mm -hmm. is a man. Mm -hmm. And that living as one is Hart's only chance for a happy existence and, quote, the best that can be done. Well, boom. There it is. So (laughs) there was a lot of acceptance from this doctor, surprisingly enough, Mm -hmm. Um, and actually, in all of his notes, um, Alan's name is not mentioned. He's referred to as H, just mm-hmm. H, just obviously for, you know, his own protection, you know, well, doctor's and also, not going to write down his <laughs> shorthand notes like you, that's right. just how you refer to a person. Um, and, you know, it was identified sometime after 
Alan Hart's death, that that's who he was, he was referring, referring to. to. Huh. Mm-hmm. I also find this really interesting because the surgery itself is just requesting to eliminate menstruation. And it's like... Well, we're about to talk about right, that, actually. But, like, just just starting at that point, I find that really interesting because already that would not... That would have been met with a lot of resistance for any oh, women. Yes. Uh, yes. Because... It, birth control was so I'm gonna do a whole yes. at some point episode, episode on, on the history control. of birth control because oh my god it's interesting yeah. but um, the the thought of a woman not wanting to have babies was like <gasps> exactly and it, yeah. like, and like something you would not be able to get permission to do without like your husband or whatever like it that right. birth control was already so difficult to come by that like having a surgery essentially that is the end goal is birth control right to not yeah. have children like already yeah. that that's that's like for a lot of people would have been a non-starter so i just well, find I that think really that, interesting i think that in a way and i didn't read a whole lot about this um dr gilbert but i i think in a way he was sort of treating this as kind of a case study mm-hmm. and exploring the, what all of that meant psychological and sociological pieces of that that went uh-huh. into the surgery which even is though just he a is a medical doctor yeah he is a medical doctor. Right. Like, he is the one who performs the surgery that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Right. But, um, yeah. So, I, I just find it all very interesting. Yeah. So, let's talk a little bit more about, like, that surgery and, you know, what it all kind of meant at the time. Right. So, early female-to-male transition surgeries mm-hmm. basically involved the implanting of testicular tissue in place of the removed ovaries. Hmm. So this had a pretty high risk of infection, yeah. as you might Doesn't imagine. Seem crazy safe. Um, and you know, be- because like hormones weren't manufactured until like 1920 when right. Bayer started manufacturing them. Right. Um, and he did start undergoing ho- hormone therapy, by the way, when he was able to. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1917, Gilbert removes. Alan Hart's uterus. Right. So at this point in time, a hysterectomy was seen as a full sex change. Huh. Which really speaks to how gender was perceived medically. Uh, I did not know that. That is so interesting. The removal of the female reproductive organs deemed him medically male. Huh. That is so interesting. I did not know that. It was like kind of a reverse of whatever surgeries were kind of being done before that. Right. Well, especially because you could have a hysterectomy for a thousand other medical reasons. A lot of reasons. reasons. Yeah. Without wanting to transition to male. Right. Isn't that that so weird? So so there were, and this is just hypothetical, there were women who identified as women. Women. Who yeah. had hysterectomies because something about... Something was wrong. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Would have been medically deemed male for all now, future doctor appointments? I Yeah, I mean, I get... Now, this is also from outhistory.org. Right. So that's where I got this information. But I do think that that's probably correct. That is and really interesting. It just really speaks to how the medical profession perceived gender uh-huh. being so deeply tied to like your well, biological sex which is also weird because that our brains and nervous systems well were, yeah were from our but, uteruses so. but i mean like you know that is not the only 
part of a biological female that is biologically female. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So like, but just removing that one aspect, having it be a totally different like medical Mm -hmm. um, classification is so odd. And it's true that like medically they used to think that every single issue a woman had came back to her uterus. Uh, Yeah. Every piece of it. Which is like, Oh. Wow. Okay. I did not know that. That is so interesting. Yeah. Anyway. So, back to anyway. Alley. <laughs> Sorry for my rant about birth control. That's a, like, no, it's so medicine. interesting. Yeah. So anyway, Alan gets his surgery and then he legally changes his name. Awesome. Um, so I'm going to go through some of his uh, professions now. Okay. Um, Alan interns at San Francisco Hospital. And there, he's recognized by a formal, former classmate, and he's outed. Mm. And in the Spokesman Review newspaper on February 6th, 1918, there's an article about it. Because they printed freaking everything in newspapers huh. then. Um, and the article's opening sentence refers to him by his birth name and with female pronouns. And, it, it, you know, it outs him. Ugh. Which is harsh. Yeah. Um, Way harsh, Ty. Yeah, there's a lot more of that throughout his life, too. Yeah. Um, in February of 1918, Alan marries his first wife, Inez Stark. They move to Gardner, Oregon, where Alan starts his own practice. Huh. That's also but wild the- to me. Like, I know this is after he has, like, been medically deemed male and changed his name. But, like, still the idea of, like... I, the hurdles they well, must have had to go through to get married is also... Like, I don't know, though, because you know. also have yeah. to think there's a lot less of, like, you know... It, back in these times, you could just move to another state. You could be married to somebody else somewhere else, and then you could marry someone else in Oregon. Nobody would know the difference. That's true, yeah. Like, there was not as much in terms of, like, record keeping. And communicating so, that. Yeah, that's true. N- nobody would have known, I don't think, yeah, if, if you would have told state. anybody. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Wouldn't have made any difference. Um, so anyway, when they're in Oregon, um, he's again outed by an, another former classmate. Where are these fools coming from? <laughs> well, you have to think the medical profession at this point in time, it's not like it's massive. Yeah. And also, you know. He's not that people, far. And yeah. This particular profession does kind of scatter all over the place, yeah. right? So, you know, I could, if I graduate from, let's say, Harvard and I start working at a hospital out in California, chances that I run into former classmates in California are pretty, pretty high. high. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, that's not super weird. Yeah. Um, but it is pretty crappy that they keep outing him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he gets outed again and he has to move again. Um, he sets up another practice in a town called Huntley, Montana. Um, and later on, he writes that he, quote, did operations in barns and houses until the crash of the autumn of 1920 wiped out most of the Montana farmers and stockmen huh. and me along with them. Huh. Which I thought was interesting. Um, then he kind of starts taking work where he can get it. Um, until 1921, when he gets recommended by Dr. Harriet J. Lawrence um, to work as um, a staff physician at Albuquerque Sanatorium. 
Uh, Harriet J. Lawrence was one of the people who helped to develop flu vaccines, I think. Huh. So pretty big recommendation. Right, yeah. Now, because they have to move a whole lot, there's obviously some financial strain. There's a lot of secrecy in their lives. So it puts a pretty heavy strain on his marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And Inez leaves him in September of 1923. She... Tells him she doesn't want any more contact with him. Mm-hmm. And they divorce in 1925. Yeah. Uh, but then later that same year, Alan marries his second wife, Edna Ruddick. And this one sticks. <laughs> good. So <laughs> we're, we're good with Edna. This one sticks. <laughs> also in 1925, um, Alan moves to work at the Trudeau School of Tuberculosis in New York. Mm. And then from 1926 to 1928, he works as a clinician at the Rockford TB Sanatorium in Illinois. We're going to loop back around to some of his TB work here God, in a minute. people who worked with TB patients at that time are like Wait the Wait till you hear about his work, though. Oh, man. Yeah. Amazing. Um, in 1928, he obtains a master's degree in radiology from the University of Pennsylvania, which is also important to his work with TB. Mm-hmm. Um, And then in 1929, he's named director of radiology at Tacoma General Hospital. And then throughout the 1930s, they move to Idaho. And he works there throughout most of the 30s and, like, early 40s. Um, He also spends some time in Washington. You know, he does, like, a research fellowship in Spokane. Um, During the war, he is a medical advisor at the Army Recruiting and Induction Headquarters in Seattle. Um, And Edna, at the time, is working for the King County Welfare Department in the same city. So they get to kind of stay together. Can I... This is just an aside comment. It is Uh wild to me that he as a young child grew up playing civil war and uh-huh. then lived through world war two one and mm-hmm. two because he played doctor a lot too when he was a kid right so but like just the idea like oh yeah yeah i that, think of that the, time the civil war as being so vastly different from world war two yeah. because technology had advanced so much and the wars were so different but like the idea that like most of the like older adults who fought yeah. in world war two grew up with stories from the Civil War. Well, you're just just reminded of how short our country's history actually is. Yeah, yeah. It's It's all so much closer together than you think. Yeah, it's wild to think about. Anyway. So most of Alan's career is dedicated to research and treatment of tuberculosis, like we mentioned at the top and throughout a little bit here. Mm So he's actually one of the first physicians to document how it spread at that point via the circulatory system. Um, Because, you know, for a while, it was hard for them to figure out how it spread until finally they realized it was, you know, if you were in close contact with someone, you know. I think we're all familiar now with droplets and how (laughs) things spread. I don't want to talk too much about it because it's a little jarring. Um, And then... Let's talk about x-rays for a second. Okay. So x-rays had only been discovered in 1895. So Hart was five when x-rays are discovered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously they're used to find like broken bones, uh, tumors, uh, that kind of thing. But then Hart gets interested in 
how they might detect tuberculosis. Hmm. So the reason that we use x-rays to detect tuberculosis, like, in the lungs to try to find it early is because of Alan Hart. Huh. And his, you know, work to make that possible. It's so interesting. Again, I say, people who, like... The people who worked with tuberculosis pa- patients for long periods of time without getting tuberculosis, it's, like, crazy to me. Yeah, it is. Because it was well, so contagious. But this helped with that. Right, because yeah. Because it allowed them, because it usually didn't present symptoms very early on, but it allowed them to detect it really early and then separate those people from the general public and quarantine them. To stop the spread, yeah. To stop the spread. And also, they could find ways to treat them early on, thus preventing their death. Right. It's just, so, it was just so contagious, but it's just because we didn't know. It's just I, any every movie where with TV patients, oh, I just am like so. It makes my skin crawl. It makes me so stressed because I'm like, oh, oh you're all harsh. gonna get TB. <laughs> I know it's so harsh. Uh huh. So that in 1937, Alan is hired by the Idaho Tuberculosis Association. He later becomes the state's tuberculosis control officer. Um, And he establishes the state's first fixed location and mobile TB screening clinics. Huh. So between 1933 and 1945, he travels throughout rural Idaho for thousands of miles while he's lecturing, you know, about the topic. And while he's doing that, he's conducting mass TB screenings and training people about it. Um, and treating the effects. So he's, in a sense, kind of controlling the epidemic throughout the state of Idaho. Um, he writes a lot for medical journals, um, a, a lot about describing TB for technical and general audiences. So he makes it a little more accessible, gives a lot of advice on prevention and detection. Um, and... Because the word tuberculosis obviously carried a pretty heady, heavy stigma back right, then. Right, yeah. Um, he insists that his clinics be referred to as chest clinics, huh. that he be referred to as a chest doctor, and that his patients be chest patients. So that they could go without and get checked without any of the stigma well and if people were like why where are you going all the time to get treated they could say i'm going to a chest clinic and nobody would be like oh you have tb Mm -hmm. you know which is really interesting that he was the one who was like no actually let's make sure people feel safe Mm -hmm. well i mean given his history and his life he's he would be the doctor, I would say, who would think of that kind of care. You know what I mean? Like, Yes, exactly. Yeah. In 1943, he compiles all of his evidence on TB and x-ray detectable cases. And it's all published <laughs> in a publication called, it's long, These Mysterious <laughs> Rays, a non-technical discussion of the uses of x-rays and radium, chiefly in medicine. These mysterious rays. And it's still a standard text today. It's been translated into lots of different languages. That's so cool. I know. In 1948, Alan obtains a master's degree in public health from Yale. Um, He and his wife then moved to Connecticut. 
And here he's named the director of hospitalization and rehabilitation for the Connecticut State Tuberculosis Commission. Wow. Um, they stay in West Hartford, Connecticut, you know, for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. together. And Edna actually becomes a professor at the University of Hartford. Mm-hmm. Um, so after World War II, synthetic testosterone becomes available in the U.S. Ah. And for the first time, he's able to grow a beard and shave, <laughs> which I thought was That's, interesting. Yes, I love that. He also starts to then develop a deeper voice, because mm-hmm. we all know that's a, an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this makes him just much more confident. He speaks publicly all the time. You can imagine how much more confident you would be yeah. <laughs> after you start to sound like, you know, what you want to sound mm-hmm. like. How much easier um, that would become. Totally. So, with all of this, he also has sort of a side career as a novelist. What? This is this is the coolest person. I know. <laughs> he is. I didn't know anything about him. He is so I know, cool. Me either. And I saw it on like the list of things I was looking through, and I was like, okay, hold on, that's the one. Um. So. I mean, throughout his life, he's been writing. We've kind of talked about that. He was published early on in some journals and stuff. So, you know, throughout his college years, he writes like nine short stories. They're all published. Um, He writes four novels. They're all, you know, kind of semi-autobiographical. They feature gay characters. Um, There's one that has a character that's got like a physical ailment and you can read it as you know, kind of, mm-hmm. I guess you could say an allegory for what he went through. Right. Um, I want to read his books. There's a list of them on his Wikipedia. Excellent. So I, I didn't check to see if they were still, like, sold anywhere, but I'm sure you could find them if you search I'm looking at them. pictures of them. Oh, okay. Just I was just Googled it because I want to read his books, but I don't know sure. if they're still widely available. But that's yeah, dope. I don't know either. Yeah. Um... During the sort of later years of his life, he continues to give lots of lectures um, and then starts dedicating his free time to fundraising for medical research and to support patients with advanced TB who couldn't afford treatment. Um, He's a member of the American Thoracic Society, the American Public Health Association, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and the American Civil Liberties Union. We all know them. Mm -hmm. ACLU, baby. Mm -hmm. Um, He and Edna, like, I just read this little bit that said socially they were both really well-liked. They're very active in the community. Um, And Alan serves for eight years as vice president of his local Unitarian Church Council, which I found really interesting. (laughs) So then, on July 1st of 1962, Alan dies of heart failure. Mm. Um, The terms of his will directed that his body be cremated and his ashes scattered over Puget Sound, where he and Edna had spent many happy summers Mm. together. Um, He also had wishes that a fund for research into leukemia be established. Hmm. Um, His mother had died of leukemia. Oh, okay. So after his death, Edna um, makes sure to set that up. Mm -hmm. And the interest on his estate is donated annually 
to oh. the Alan L. and Edna Ruddick Heart Fund, um, which gives research grants um, into leukemia research. Wow. Um, so this is going to loop back to, like, why there's not so much known about his early life. Mm-hmm. So part of his will, which he had written in 1943, stipulated that his personal letters and photographs be destroyed. Mm. Um, so they, they did that mm-hmm. upon his death. Um, uh, and then I just, this quote was interesting. Hart had acted all his life to control the interpretation of his private and emotional life and the destruction of his personal records at his death were com- com- commensurate, <laughs> it's a hard word, with this goal. Yeah. So there's not a ton about like his personal writings because he was very private about his personal life sure. didn't want people to know um about anything about his life pre-transition basically right um never talked about it um so i just found him very interesting that was a shorter he, one he, we had a longer one last yeah, we time had to balance this is a shorter one. um but he's very interesting and i knew nothing about me him. either that that was so cool there and there's so much interesting Medical history wrapped up in yes. that. That both was my thought him, too. It's both, like both for him personally and just for the work that he did. Like mm-hmm. he 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 was an advancement in medicine. Just yes. walking in his life. Yes, it's amazing. I, it's so interesting, and the fact that he was like also a novelist, I found really interesting. Yeah. And I I just think, what a cool dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know. There wasn't, like, a ton of research to be done about him outside of, like, his Wikipedia and this, like, out history thing that I found. Mm-hmm. And, other um, little bits you know, a few other bits and things I kind of was able to grab. But, um, h- honestly, his Wikipedia is a very interesting read. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I just, I saw his name on, like, the list of kind of things I was looking up. And I was like, I can't believe I've never heard of this person, especially because of the um the the tb research yeah because it was such a such a massive problem everywhere but particularly in this country mm-hmm. well and and like the, the fact, fact that, that he... i never knew that this was the person who made it so that we were using x-rays to detect well, it like the fact that he wild. wrote a book that is still used as a text like a standard text yeah yes it is wild yeah so i just found it really interesting it's very interesting yeah. Good one, sis. And I wanted to feature, you know, a trans person mm-hmm. for Pride because, you know, sometimes trans people get left out of Pride, mm-hmm. which is stupid. Yeah. And I almost cursed, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't curse on this podcast. I almost cursed a few times in this one just because I felt myself being like, what the what? Yeah. About oh, certain I, things. Me and, yeah. me and the last episode. Whew, yeah. It was more about being in like sort of huh in this one than like angry um (laughs) but yeah and i also love that like i love that there was a doctor that helped it now i didn't do a ton of research into the doctor like i said so who knows maybe in the end he was a terrible person in general i don't know right but But i'm saying the work that he did here was it was interesting that he did it at all that he wrote about like his mental state when, when for so long Yes. Being gay or transgender was listed as a 
a mental illness. Mental illness. And even for so long after this. Yes. Like, uh, it, the fact it, that that doctor wrote about it and said, this person is not mentally ill. They just right. will be happier if they are a man. So why should right. I and, not help them medically? And also the fact that he was like, this is who this person has always been. Yeah. For his whole life. Like, I, fa- I think that part of the reason that he was able to successfully transition excuse me, whoa, transition, truthfully, is because he was able to express his true gender throughout his childhood. It was never really repressed in him by the people who cared for him. Right, and he didn't have to, Obviously in school, but, like, in his home life, he was able to be who he was. Mm -hmm. And And you're right, when he went to say, hey, I would like to have this surgery because look at all of this evidence from my actual life since I was very young. Yeah, yeah. and and like I have always referred to myself as a man. Mm -hmm. And and there was something that was like he would play with the other boys Mm -hmm. when he was very small. He would pick on the girls like they used to do back Mm -hmm. then. And like it was just... I, and I don't think that he ever experienced, from what I could tell, he didn't experience much um, discrimination, like, before the times that he went to school. Like, when he like was when really he little would and just, just play with the, the other boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With his like, friends, there was, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that that particular, like, nourishment. Yeah. Made a huge difference. It'll always in, make it easier. It'll always make it easier. Well, in the fact that he even went for it at all, yeah. certainly. But also the fact that he was able to say, look, it's been my whole life. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not mentally ill. It's just who I am. Mm-hmm. And that the fact that the doctor was like, yeah. yeah. It's wild. <laughs> I know. Well, it's so interesting. Yeah. Interesting person. I love when we get someone, like, just that we that didn't we know really, anything about. Yeah. It's so cool. It's just another that I just, I genuinely can't believe I didn't know about this person. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, listeners, if you have really kind of studied up on, you know, queer history or LGBTQIA history. Or, alternatively, medical history. Like, if you are are particularly interested in the history of TB, is this a person that you know about? Yeah. If you've studied up on queer history, is this someone you came across? Right. And if you've studied up on medical history, did you come across the fact that he was a trans man? Or just that he had text that you used or whatever? Uh, Yeah, I'm very curious. Yeah, me too. That's so Um, interesting. Because obviously there was like a lot, you know, we went to school in West Virginia. There was a lot Mm -hmm. we didn't learn about. But but most of that stuff now, it's like, um, for instance, the Tulsa riots. Like, I didn't know about that Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. But now it's like, oh, I'm learning about it. I'm being educated about it. But this is one of those things that it's like, I don't know when I would have come across. Unless you learned about it on your own. Yeah. Right. Which is like, I feel like we should. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a very important medical figure, if nothing else. Yeah. Anyway, I've rambled about it for quite a while (laughs) now. But, um, yeah. So... I had a lot of fun researching it. That found it really interesting. Yeah, good last Pride episode. Yeah, so we're back to just your regularly scheduled unthemed programming next month. We'll see what. <laughs> so that... rare for us to have an unthemed month. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what that comes to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So if anybody has any suggestions that they would like to give us for topics, or if you have questions, comments, et cetera, et cetera, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at RTTPod. Um, we're also on Facebook if you just search the name of the podcast. Um, and if you could leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this podcast, that would be fantastic uh if you want to find me on the internet i am at the real anna web and i'm at acw nerdfighter yay yeah i have i am always impressed with myself every time i get through it (laughs) even though you've done it this is our no this do you know what episode number this is i surely do it's 69 baby nice nice um but you've done it 69 nice times so but it's the same as when we do the intro where <gasps> I halfway through time. saying it, halfway through the words coming out of my mouth, I think, is any of this correct? Yeah, I is do. Is this what I say? I panic every time also. Every time. Ugh, anyway. All right. Well. You don't know what you're doing next time? No. No. Well, absolutely not. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Uh-huh. And uh, until that next time. Remember that time. Remember that time.